1: I'm Alan Hart, and this is
2: Marketing Today. Today on the show, I talk to Leland Moshmeyer. Leland's been the chief creative officer of Chobani since 2016, and in 2019, his role was expanded to be the chief creative and strategy officer. He's a World Economic Forum young global leader, and also the co-founder and former co-chief creative officer at Collins, a renowned design firm. On the show today, Leland and I take on... What he's doing at Chobani and this unbelievable creative organization that he's now leading at the company. We talk about some recent campaign work, as well as his just philosophy on design and business and the intersection between those two things. You don't want to miss this episode with Leland. Listen in. Leland, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we've had dinner together. We've kind of got to know each other through a webinar experience. I'm excited to have you on the podcast finally. So, one of the things I thought we could just start with is I know you went to school at UNC, but we've never talked about where you're from.
1: Where are you from? Yeah, I wish I had a good story behind this, but it's pretty straightforward. Um, I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee and grew up in a small town called Alpharetta, Georgia.
2: Ah, okay. Okay. But a southern kid to start your roots before moving to the big city.
1: Yes. Very proud to be southern
2: there you go there you go i can sense it just the tiny tiniest bit in your voice not much but it's it's there it's that uh, Southern southern gentleman edge that you have.
1: <laughs> that makes me happy. I, I never have had a very strong Southern accent. And both of my parents also grew up in the South and um, Virginia and Mississippi and Arkansas. And they don't have strong accents either. So whenever I tell people I'm from the South, they are very confused. Most people think I'm from California. I've had a lot of people think I'm from Europe, which is always strange to hear. But I'm like, I actually wish I had a very thick southern accent, but alas, my my life did not go that way. Yeah.
2: That's funny. That's funny. Well, there's another guy that's been on this show. I believe he's also from Knoxville, uh Jay Livingston, and you guys both live in New York now. He's the uh, CMO at um oh my gosh, it just went out of my head. He was at Bark and Bark Box and now he is at the famous hamburger chain. Why can I not think of the name of it? Shake Shack. Shake Shack, yes. He's the CMO of Shake Shack. So two Knoxville guys.
1: Yeah. Knoxville's working its way up in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, well, let's talk about your
2: career. Where'd you get your start? And what was the path to becoming chief creative officer at Chobani?
1: So coming out of college, I actually freelanced in design for a while, for maybe about a year or two, and then ended up getting a job at a mid-sized ad agency in North Carolina called McKinney, where I had interned during college. I didn't have a portfolio, like an advertising portfolio, so they wouldn't hire me as a creative, but I was also really fascinated with the strategy side of the creative communications world. And so I ended up taking a job as a strategist for a few years and moved up the ranks there, then decided that While advertising was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it and learned a lot, particularly about the business of creativity, I really missed design and wanted to get back into that. And so through a series of fortunate events, ended up meeting a gentleman named Brian Collins. And he and I just immediately clicked with each other and decided to start a new design firm with each other. And so we were both co-founders of the design firm Collins in New York City. And I had done that for almost a decade when Shobani called me and while Chobani was a much lesser known smaller company at the time, I was really fascinated by the opportunity I saw there, which was not so much just to go and be the first chief creative officer of Chobani, but to apply design to organizational transformation. Because Chibani had huge ambitions and they were at the time mainly just selling Greek yogurt. And a lot of people didn't even know how to pronounce the name. A lot of people called it Kobani. So I was really fascinated with that idea, and I'd also come to a point in my career where I didn't want to sing the songs that other people wrote. I wanted to write the music myself. I wanted to really be able to own a whole brand, soup to nuts, and so the Chibani opportunity offered that, and it was a really exciting, unique opportunity that I I jumped on that train and was excited to see where it took me.
2: You jumped on the train and and you made it into a flying jet, I think. You've built one of the most successful internal agencies, I think, in the world. I don't think that's a stretch. I think that's real. And I'd love to just hear, like, where'd you start? How did you do that? And why is it effective for you?
1: Well, first off, thank you. I, you know, I'll, I'll I'll probably quote you on that. (laughs) You know, the very first thing that I did was when I was trying to understand the business situation of the company, I started realizing like, oh, this is not only stuff that I've done for a lot of other companies, but this is also familiar to my own experience, creating my own design firm. And I always approached it not as how do I build an internal agency, but how do I transform Shabani into a creatively driven culture? And so a big part of it was telling some of the people that I adopted, some project managers, some production designers, that it was going to get a lot worse before it got better. And that was a it's probably not the most motivating thing in the world. But I think everyone needed to really understand that change requires going through periods of destruction, periods of learning, periods of being unknown and stuff. And so really setting the table early on that if we were going to truly become one of not just the best in-house creative capabilities, but one of the best creative capabilities in the country, we were going to have to go through a lot of growing pain. So that was the very first thing I did, because I knew that from my own experience starting my design firm, there was a lot of startup struggles and startup costs associated with it. The other thing that I did was, because a manufacturing culture is different than a creative culture, I had to do a lot of translating. And luckily, I was working with some really fantastic people that I had recruited, like Kwame Taylor Hayford and Lisa Smith, who were instrumental And helping me communicate how building a creative capability was different than just building another department. So there was a lot of high touch, a lot of conversations, a lot of explanation about why payment terms couldn't be the same for production companies when we worked with them as it was for other vendors that the company worked with why salary bands were different for creative professionals than they were for other marketing professionals, why we needed so much headcount to do something that on paper seemed so simple. This was all just stuff that the organization just didn't understand because it didn't have experience building this type of stuff. And there were luckily some people in the HR department who had worked in organizations that had creative capabilities before. So they were sympathetic to it and stuff. So the next step, as it sounds like, was about building alliances through trust building and education and things like that. And then after that, it was, was a typical startup journey. You try to find your what is typically called product market fit, but you try to do that within an, an existing organization. What's the most important work that we can be doing? What's the most impactful work that we can be doing? How do we track it? How do we prioritize it? Followed by how do we also not just service where the company is right now, but how do we also start to build the future of where this company can go? And so a long part of the process while we were building the team, while we were figuring out process, was trying to build the future of Chibani while also servicing where the company was at that moment. So a lot of people don't understand this, but while we were building the plane, we were not just flying a plane, we were trying to fly two planes. The future of Chibani and the present day of Chibani. And again, luckily, because we were able to set expectations early, because we were able to kind of put on paper what the journey was going to look like, people understood why they were working extra long. They understood why there were difficulties. They understood why a process that we put in place on Monday was all of a sudden upended on Wednesday and a completely new process put in. It was just a lot of learning and exploration and experimentation. And then the last thing I'll say, and there's so many things I could say about this, but the last thing I'll say is this. From day one, we did not want to build an internal agency. Instead, what we wanted to do was we wanted to build a creatively centered and driven marketing capability. So we never named our agency we actually even stopped talking about it as an agency we never wanted to separate ourselves from the rest of the organization we never did the typical financing model of an in-house agency which is a chargeback model which essentially you treat the in-house agency the same way you would an external vendor you send a brief they the agency bids and then the people who hold the money decide do i want to pay that or not and do I want to pay? You know, hire someone else to do it who can do it cheaper and faster? There's a lot of in-house agencies that do that, and they've, they've been successful at that. That just was not going to work for us. And so what we did was the funded model where we had our own budgets, we ran the, market, the media budgets, and everything was oriented towards the idea of does this enhance the creative work? Does this make the work better, more effective, more powerful, broader reach, better distribution, more memorable? And so regardless, if you were a media planner, an art director, a social media strategist, everyone was focused on the idea that it's the creative impact that matters. And you can make creative work better through smarter media and, and measurement. You can make the creative better through you know, better copywriting and imagination. It didn't matter. All of it was geared towards just how are we better, more creative and smarter as a marketing organization. And so internally, even to this day, we don't ever refer to our group as an agency. We are the marketing department.
2: Got it. Got it. One of the things that over the interactions that we've had that kind of struck me is I first met you, I thought, oh, okay, a creative background or, or, you know, this is going to be a creative person. And then from the first moment, I think you started speaking, we, we were quickly talking about game theory and uh, business concepts uh, and then flash forward to a webinar and you know you're you're talking in terms of CPG business terms and and I honestly like the more I I listen to you the more I'm like I understand why advertising early on in your career wasn't a good fit and that you wanted to move to design but you're also a pretty savvy business person and how do you How do you think about the intersection between design and business? Because it it seems like it's playing at the intersection of why you're successful.
1: Yeah. um, The challenge with me is that people have never known what to do with me because I don't necessarily fit into a box. And I had one person really early on in my career say, this was the advice they gave me. They said, you're going to have a hard time getting a job for most of your career because you don't really fit into any of the job roles that people have defined. You're not really going to make sense until you're at like a high level creative director role when you can oversee lots of different stuff. So my biggest concern was always, how do I do the best creative work possible? Like I care deeply about beauty. I care deeply about storytelling. I care deeply about visual arrest. And in every effort of my career, trying to learn that, I always found myself bumping into walls and ceilings. And sometimes that wall was called the strategic brief, sometimes that ceiling was called what the client asked for. And so to try and knowing that there was creative opportunity between that beyond that wall or beyond that ceiling, I kept trying to understand why that ceiling was there, why that wall was there. And I would start realizing it's like, oh, the brief was written that way, because this is how structurally advertising works in the marketing mix, or the client asked for it that way because of the business model that they run. And so every time I hit a barrier, I didn't get frustrated or kick at it. I started asking, well, why is the barrier there? And what I started learning was that there were all these adjacent problems and adjacent challenges to the question of how do you make incredible creativity? And so when we founded Collins, the premise of Collins was incredible craft at incredible scale. And the thing that I learned from Brian was how to blend the language of business and the language of creativity with each other without compromising either. That was something that I hadn't learned anywhere else. There were lots of places where business and creativity were part of the conversation, but they were sort of siloed. They were like two dominoes hitting each other. But when I started working with Brian, it was really, you discovered a way of talking about creativity in only business language. But as a creative person, you felt you were still honoring the creative idea rather than trying to diminish it or hide it, which I think a lot of other places sometimes do. But as a business person, you listened to that and you were like, oh, I totally understand why red is the most powerful and right color for my business. Not just it looks aesthetically good. And in addition, I've always been fascinated by systems. And I think that's where business and design overlaps a lot. There's a lot of conflict in the question of what's the difference between an art director and a designer. Advertising agencies tend to think designers are production designers, the person who just goes and makes the mechanical or the image that the art director came up with. And I I just think that's wrong. In my opinion, an art director is someone who knows how to craft a beautiful image. A designer is someone who knows how to build a system a working system of symbols and images and language and color that can be scaled up. And the relationship between design and business is very close because design is all about, I mean, both design and business are all about scale. They're all about systems. They're all about how do things work together to achieve a business goal. And, you know, you even see, you know, IDEO creating business model design as a discipline within what they do. So design is is a much broader discipline, even than how I'm describing it right now, but that's a whole different conversation. So it was a natural affinity for me to have this deep understanding and love of design and translate that into understanding how businesses work, what are different business models, what's the construct of different campaigns, even finance. Like I've I've started to get really into finance and understanding finance as, in many cases, a design problem. So for me, all of these adjacent worlds and adjacent conversations to the question of how do we do incredible creativity that moves people are all design related. So I've never felt there was a field too far for me to go. I always felt like it always sat within design, whether in the immediate situation or later on. So I was always Excited to learn about this stuff and excited to apply it to what I was doing in the moment.
2: Well, you described your model of what you've built, not being an agency, and actually kind of not even focusing on that terminology, uh, but calling you're basically the marketing department. And you talked about the funding model that you guys have, and and it sounds like it works really well for you know optimizing what you're trying to achieve for the company. Curious if you have any rationale, like why that model or why. What you the approach that you're taking, why that works best for you, and you know, would you advocate that for other companies?
1: Yeah, the model that we've created, I don't think is a panacea. I think every company has to create a model that's proper for where they are in the growth curve as a company, the dynamics of their industry, how they want to use creativity to grow their company, and for us. Our model is perfect because we are a growth stage company. We are in a incredibly competitive marketplace where there is no real competitive advantage other than brand, because you can make a great product, but that product is easily copyable by the competition. And in fact, the competition is incentivized to just copy the products like that's, that's what you see in well-established categories with duopolies and oligopolies is the big players just all copy each other. So we can't win on price because our business isn't set up that way. We make a really high quality product. We hold ourselves to incredibly high quality standards. So we do have to sell it at a bit of a premium to what other people are. So we have to depend on brand. We have to depend on new product innovation to be the thing that justifies that slight price premium compared to the low cost leaders in the category. The other thing is, is that We are a company who believes speed is life. And if we're going to move quickly, silos don't work. If we're going to move quickly, competing agendas don't work. If we're going to move quickly, conflicting value sets among people who have to collaborate with each other don't work. So with creativity being an absolutely critical component to our growth plans, We needed to make sure that everyone was aligned who was a part of that process. And so over the course of this wasn't something that was established immediately, but over the course of my tenure at Chobani, what we've integrated into my team is all consumer marketing, all design, product innovation strategy, oftentimes go to market strategy, as well as mergers and acquisitions. And these are all growth related activities. These are all creativity related activities, because they are inherently about growth. So by bringing all of this together and putting at the very top of it, creativity, how are we doing this better than the competition? How are we making a product that is differentiated? How are we making a product that is 10 times better than what exists out there? How are we creating salience for the brand? Those are all inherently creative questions. And if we can't tie a media plan idea and uh, an analytics Agenda, an innovation pipeline to that idea of how we are better, bolder, braver, and stronger than what our competition is doing. Then we are not being creative. And so, bringing all that together allows us to deliver on the strategic imperative of the organization, which is growth through creativity.
2: Love that. I want to transition gears just slightly. I want to talk a little bit about talent. You know, I think many folks that I've heard have moved creative functions in-house to start. They worry about getting the right talent and others kind of worry about fostering kind of this continued inspiration or creativity that they need. And I'm just curious, like what's been your experience and how would you speak to some of those concerns?
1: Well, I think they're very real concerns. Certainly when I began recruiting people, there was some skepticism. Of joining a yogurt company in-house. In-house traditionally hasn't had the best reputation and yogurt didn't seem like the most exciting thing for the world's best talent to commit their careers to. However, I was lucky enough to have had a very successful career uh, prior to Chibani. So I was able to trade in the equity that I had built. I first started hiring my most senior talent because I, and I focused on people who had worked in the agency world for a while and were primed and ready to do something different. And I sold the idea of creating the future of in-house. I sold the idea of organizational transformation and then a company that at its right it was at the right kind of Goldilocks sweet spot of doing something remarkable. So these were people who were willing to take a risk and take a leap. Once I had them, being able to recruit the mid and junior level talent was much easier. However, I don't know that that's a replicable model for a lot of other people. Some of the things that I've learned in recruitment is you have to build trust. Whereas like in an agency, a lot of agencies all operate roughly the same and they're known entities to creative professionals. So you don't have to do as much selling because also your work is out there and your client list is displayed proudly on your site. So there's not a lot of selling and trust building that you have to do, but there definitely is with talent coming in-house to an organization that doesn't have in-house or is trying to build its in-house you need to establish why the in-house will be taken seriously and not just be treated as a cost savings department you need to establish the pipeline of projects that are coming down the line here's what we're doing here's what's coming up you need to wherever you can provide reasons to believe evidence that they're is opportunity to do incredible things, either because the organization has done them in the past or there are some new signals that the organization is doing. You also need to talk about why you want that specific person. Much like companies oftentimes want candidates to come in and be well-versed on the company and say, this is the company that they wanna work at and be passionate about it. I think the inverse is true when you're recruiting for in-house. If you are recruiting someone named Jennifer, you have to convince Jennifer that you you have paid attention to her work, her career, and you have to help her understand why she's a perfect fit and why in-house is going to give her opportunities that she could never get at an agency. And those are all things that, that we've done over time uh, to recruit certain people or certain skill sets that have been harder to recruit than others. And they've been very successful for us. We've even put together short little packets talking about the leadership, talking about the company, talking about the history of work, talking about the opportunities for the role. So that, so it's really kind of like collateral so that people understand the opportunity better. But it all falls under that spirit of trust building.
2: Right. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Just curious, like do you still go outside for work and, and when do you go outside, given you've you've built quite a capability inside the company?
1: We almost never go outside. We want to do everything in-house. There are a few moments where we have gone outside because we needed a very specific skill set on a high profile job that we either would never have the need for that skill set again after that project was done, or we had to ramp up so quickly that we didn't have time to go out and recruit someone or our team of people. However, that has been, I would say, less than two percent of the work that we've done as a team.
2: Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. I don't know if you're if you're willing to comment on the state of agencies in today's world, but I'm just curious your perspective on their effectiveness and and whether you still see them as effective.
1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I absolutely think agencies are still effective. And I do believe there's a very important and big market for agencies to thrive in. There's not going to be a scenario where agencies go away. I think what's happening is, is the marketplace is diversifying like any marketplace does. There's Every marketplace goes through an explosion, a Cambrian explosion of lots of different offerings, small offerings. And then slowly you go through a bundling process where everything starts combining with each other and you get clear striations in the marketplace duopolies oligopolies and stuff like that and then eventually there's a whole craft movement that always ends up happening where nobody to contrast yourself against the big institutional monolithic players a lot of small players break off from them and start little niche offerings it it happens literally in every industry for the most part except maybe like the airline industry so i just think we've we've been in that period for a long time where there were where there was a clear leveling of market size and dominant players. And then we've, for various dynamic reasons, moved into a phase where there is an explosion of variation in the marketplace and an explosion of mid and small sized offerings. And I would say in-house agencies are the equivalent of a mid or small sized offering. So the industry of Advertising or agencies hasn't grown. Like I think the the total spend on let's just take advertising specifically hasn't gone up, and I would imagine that it's roughly the same in other agency sub industries because we live in a zero to single or a, a low to no growth economy. So there's not a lot of new money being pumped into the marketing space. There's it's just being shuffled around and split up. So I think what's happening with a lot of these big agencies is that they're right-sizing for the marketplace. They'll never go away. And there will still be awesome players. And there are still a lot of mid and small-sized agencies who are doing incredible work and are growing at a pretty rapid, dependable, resilient clip. But because they have a smaller share of voice in the trade publications, it sounds like the sky is falling on all agencies. It's really the big guys who have the largest share of voice because they're the ones that all the journalists are looking at. So if they're having troubles, then the then the narrative of the sky is falling is becomes the dominant narrative. But if you really do a true survey, particularly of the middle and small sized agencies, they're doing quite well.
2: Got it. Got it. Well, we started off talking about how successful you've been bringing the work in-house at Chobani. Any advice for somebody that's maybe just getting started on that journey?
1: Yeah, I think like starting an in-house capability, whether it's a true in-house model or a department evolution, you have to look at it as a startup, an entrepreneurial experience. And in any entrepreneurial experience, you have to find the market opportunity that you're going to build a business around and provide value to. Because if you don't do that internally, and I I made some of these mistakes early on as well, you're going to be you're going to be recruiting people who won't have much to do within the company. You'll be trying to do work that the company doesn't want to do because it, it's not what the company needs to grow the business. And you'll be very frustrated. So you have to match the model of the agency and what the agency produces and what the talent is for what the need is at the company. And that need within a company is always, always the thing that's going to help it make more money. Sometimes it saves more money, sometimes it makes more money, top line, bottom line. But you really need to understand where that opportunity is. If it's a company that, similar to Chibani is really dependent upon brand and differentiation, you're going to build that differently than if it's a company, like a financial company, which actually doesn't need to do that, which really just needs to fill its content pipelines with a constant stream of fresh content. That's a different model that you're going to be building. And if you build the first model for like the financial institution that I just described, you're going to be extremely frustrated because you're not going to get any traction or any support or any buy-in or your work's not going to get out because you're not delivering what that quote unquote market needs to grow.
2: Oh, that's good. That's fantastic insight. Good advice too. So I'd love to pivot a little bit and talk about some of the work and a recent launch that you guys have done around oat milk and the campaign of almost milk it's pretty fascinating one because most of your historic products have been dairy based um and here you're you're stretching you're innovating if you will into adjacent areas what was the brief or how did that get started
1: well we knew we wanted to move into the dairy alternative space for a while our mission is not better greek yogurt for people it's better food for more people so we are a food company we are not just a yogurt company. Yogurt just is where we started. So the question became, well, what base do we want to invest in? And that was a very tough challenge because there's there's a lot of bases out there, and a lot of them have gone through the hype cycles, boom and bust. And it wasn't until we came across oat and really started playing with oat that we felt that it had the taste appeal, the sustainability story, the versatility. That we believed a dairy alternative needed. So once we committed to that and built a factory to produce it, the question became, how do we market it? Because the standard playbook for any dairy alternative is to demonize dairy products and say yours is better. We couldn't do that. Obviously, the vast majority, if not all of our revenue, comes from dairy products. So how do we honor dairy products, but at the same time talk about What's great about these oat products? The first insight that we leaned on really came from the fact that people aren't totally abandoning dairy products. Pretty much everyone who's drinking plant-based products is really a flexitarian. They tend to minimize the total amount of dairy they take in their life. So if you're drinking a plant-based milk, you're probably also eating cheese. You're probably also using coffee creamer or eating butter and things like that. So it was really more of an amount issue rather than an abandonment issue. The other characteristic that we really leaned into was the reason for the hype cycle. Because a lot of these products are billed as milks, that's the language that's used, people come in with expectations. Oh, it's going to be creamy like milk. It's going to be able to be used in baking like milk. They just expect it to be just like milk but without without the dairy in it. And that's not the case. Most plant-based are super watery. They are they don't have the thickness or the ability to like foam in your coffee or they create very lackluster baking products and stuff like that. So once enough people try it, because there's a, there's a huge demand for it, which is why you get the huge hype cycle at first, then they experience the product and then they're let down and then that particular base crashes. That's how you get the hype cycle. So part of our innovation process was, We were not going to launch this unless it was truly a real substitute for milk for people who wanted that in the world. So that meant the creaminess, the taste appeal, the versatility, the utility. Once we felt we achieved that, that was essentially the brief because that was the new news. That's what separated us not from dairy, it's what separated us from all the other plant based options that are on the marketplace, that it was just like milk without the dairy. So we leaned into that within the campaign. And the whole idea for the campaign is almost milk. And so we decided to play with this idea of all these almosts, whether it was like almost spilling the milk, and then it was a reveal that, no, it was just being poured into a bowl, or it wasn't a real milk mustache, it was an almost milk mustache, things like that, or you know, these kids dressed up as a milkman where they're almost the milkman, but they weren't really. So we really wanted to drive home this idea of almost, 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 and be very single minded about it. The aesthetic of the campaign is purposefully Norman Rockwell. The reason being is that if this campaign is about it being almost milk, we had to draw upon some of the mythology and the spirit of milk within American culture. And milk is as American as apple pie. Dairy farms are, in many cases, the backbone of a lot of economies here in the United States. So we wanted something that had a lot of Americana to it, that helped it, again, feel like it was as close as you could get to milk without being milk. Wholesome, authentic, real, traditional, all that type of stuff. And so the aesthetic visual language that perfectly did that was Norman Rockwell. And so he became sort of muse for the campaign. So rather than just copying Norman Rockwell outright, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to take the sensibility of Norman Rockwell and bring a little quirkiness, a little fun to it as well to give it a little bit of a modern twist as well. And so that's how you end up with the almost milk campaign conceptually and aesthetically.
2: I love it. I love it. And we'll link for sure to some of the creative elements. I mean, the thing that blew me away was the just how visually appealing the creative was. And I was looking at videos, I think, primarily, but I'm sure it plays out in, in everything that you're doing. It, it was colorful. It was simple. But yet, it had that air of premiumness that I think you're trying to achieve, given where you are in, positioned in the marketplace. And I'm curious, you know, like I, you could literally stop almost every frame of the video I was watching, and it could have been a print ad. That's how beautiful it was. And video, I, I sometimes doesn't always come out that way. So how do you how do you achieve that?
1: Well, we worked with a really fantastic production company in Sweden, uh, RGB Six. They they did. Incredible work with us. They totally got what we were going for. What we wanted to make sure was whether it was in the photography or the video was that it looked like everything was painted. So we wanted, we saturated everything and we evened the lighting on everything to help it feel graphic and rich. Again, the graphicness was to give it a bit of modernness. The richness was, and the painterliness was uh, the characteristic of Norman Rockwell that we wanted to keep. And we worked really hard on it. A lot of those setups you see in the films took days to set up and light. I mean, they're very simple compositions in terms of just like number of objects and stuff. But to get that look on camera took, several days of 20 hour work to achieve it. And we were very lucky that the two directors from the RGB six that we worked with were so passionate about getting it right. I mean, they, they really worked through every millimeter of the production to make sure that it, that it hit exactly what we wanted to have and, and, and rhymed with the print outdoor campaign as well. So a lot of it came down to just re- working with really wonderful talent.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I mean, a lot of your recent work has focused on usage occasions. And yes, it is a Chobani ad and you've got to sell your products. But it, it doesn't really, it, it's not overt, if that makes sense. And it is really about the usage of the product. Um, and it, that's an, in some ways an, an age-old Approach in consumer packaged goods, but uh, curious, what was the strategy? Why why focus on the usage and the occasion?
1: Well, for the oat milk products, the usage and occasion was necessary because we wanted to align it with milk usage occasions. The it's just all part of the almost strategy. Like if we if the idea was this is as close to milk as you can get without the dairy then everything we showed had to feel milk or look milk or be used as milk. A lot of people knew to use oat milk as you know, a beverage, as mixing in a smoothie and coffee and all that type of stuff. So it wasn't like we were educating people, but it was a way to reinforce that this is just like milk. I mean, it was really nothing more complex than that.
2: One of the things, and I don't know if this plays out this way, but inherently I would, I've never had oat milk, but I would assume that you could put it in cereal, but I've never seen anyone do it. <laughs> you know, like, And there's a, and I don't know, as I was watching it, I was like, huh, I need to go get some of this because you've given me permission to try it because I've seen somebody do it, even though it was in an ad, I realized, but you've given me permission to try it.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting point is just a lot of people do put this stuff in smoothies or in coffees. So just to remind people that, yeah, by the way, this tastes really good in cereal. Sometimes the reminder is all that's needed, not the education.
2: Right, right, right. No, that's that's a good point. Well, this has been fascinating. I want to switch gears um, as I do on the show with everyone that comes on and talk a little bit about you, the person behind the work and the behind the strategy, behind the business. One of the, my favorite questions I ask is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think the easy answer would be to say like the, the company that I helped co-found, but I'll pass on that one. I'll actually go back to something a long time ago. I think I was in second grade. My teacher's name was Miss Kabicki. And I remember we were drawing in class. And it's a class of like 20 kids and stuff. And it was something for Thanksgiving. I think we were drawing placemats for our family at Thanksgiving. And I was drawing a scene of these pilgrims and Native Americans sitting at a table eating and there was a forest and clouds and there was a sunset and the sunlight was hitting the clouds turning them you know like a combination of orange and red and stuff and the sort of like romantic setting that as a second grader could draw as best they could and I remember Miss Kabiki picking up my artwork and I was so completely confused why she did that and walking into the back of the room and showing it to what was our art teacher. And I was so confused why they were talking over this thing that I drone and looking at me and pointing at me. I actually thought I was in trouble or something. And I I later came to learn that that was the first moment when somebody, not my parents, had recognized my artistic ability. And what ended up happening was the school ended up creating a special class. Essentially, it was just me with teacher, than art teacher that they brought in to work with me on art and stuff like that. And I, for some reason, that's always stuck with me, because I think that was the first time that I really felt that I was talented at something and that somebody recognized that talent. And it's always stuck with me. Like, I still, I still remember the clouds and stuff, and I still remember what the classroom looked like and stuff. I think everybody has had or should have one of those moments where they feel like they've been plucked out for having something or doing something special because other people have taken notice and want to help you with that. So it's one of those things that I think from a very early stage in my life gave me a lot of confidence that I had something exciting ahead of me.
2: I love that. I love the. I love the moment and the and the the detail that you 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 can almost see little Leland sitting there in the classroom as you described it. Well, now that we're talking about your younger self, what advice would you give your younger self? Maybe not second grade, but maybe if you're just starting your career again, what would you do different, or what would you say?
1: Oh man. Part of me is like, well, I'm I'm very happy with how my career has progressed and where I am and stuff. So on one hand, nothing. But on the other hand, to truly answer the question, I think the thing that because of who I am, I love absorbing information and I love knowledge and I love learning and I love kind of building my brain as if it was a bicep, right? Instead, what I've learned over a period of time is that that's important and that should always be a lifelong thing. But when you overinvest in your brain and you underinvest in building relationships and a network around you, your brain at a certain point in your life doesn't matter anymore. No matter how much knowledge you have, doesn't matter because you don't have the networks to activate that knowledge. So the advice that I would have to my younger self is invest in building relationships and a network as much as you invest in building your brain.
2: Well, on a personal note, are there um, brands or companies or, or causes that you feel you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of?
1: I don't really pay attention to my industry much, to be honest with you. There certainly are brands and companies doing amazing stuff out there. No question. But I am more fascinated by things that happen away from our industry and taking those learnings and those experiences and those references and drawing upon them when I'm trying to crack a problem within my industry. That's what I get really excited about. Like I'm, I'm deeply fascinated with a more scholarly study of Greek mythology right now and the city of Athens from a government and cultural standpoint. And I'm finding so much in those studies that are fueling what I'm doing in my professional life, much more so than if I were reading a trade publication or case studies or anything like that.
2: I love that. I love that example. I mean, I've heard people say that before, but not to that degree you know they, they may say well you know i remember somebody early on in the in the podcast journey you know working for a cpg company and said you know i'm really paying attention to entertainment brands and i thought yeah ca- outside category thinking like what, what's what's moving people to consume over and over on an entertainment platform if you will um, but i've never i don't think i've seen somebody take it to to that level of going back in time and, and studying other civilizations or other other structures if you will and so that's fascinating Thanks for sharing that.
1: Yeah. And it's not even that. Like in in my career, like I've, I spent 10 years deeply fascinated by systems dynamics and that has informed a lot, a lot of how I think about designing departments and designing businesses now.
2: That's fascinating. Well, last question for you, a little bit closer to marketing <laughs> than uh, the city of Athens. I'm just curious, your top of mind, like what do you feel like is either the largest opportunity or the biggest threat that's facing marketers today?
1: I think the biggest threat is the diminishment of creativity. I think creativity is in many ways under attack because it's not measurable. And if All marketers, both client side and otherwise, continue to move towards only things that are measurable. We will exist in a world of just optimization and be stuck in paths and never be able to evolve out of them. There's a lot of people believe that when they find success, you have to keep measuring it and you keep have to optimizing against it. But what that doesn't do is is it doesn't help you realize whether you've found success on a small mountain or a big mountain. And if you can get to the top of that success, are you, is that really the tallest mountain you can be standing on? And creativity is one of those things which helps you find the biggest mountain. And there needs to be much more emphasis, not on necessarily just disproving that performance marketing is filled with flaws and transparency issues and trust issues and stuff, though I think that is an important realization that everybody needs to have. But there needs to be more emphasis on the positive, meaning putting into creativity and understanding of how do you measure it? Like there's one thing that I'm a bit fascinated with right now. I have no idea where it's going, but there's a thing in math called an indirect proof. The idea of proving something by proving, by disproving the contrarian or showing that the contrary, the contradictory part of that proof is false. I don't fully understand it, but I'm sort of learning about it right now. But what's interesting to me about it is that creativity is, is very difficult to measure. No question. I, I tend to think of creativity as a bit of a black hole in the sense that you know it's there and it's having an enormous impact on everything around it, but you can't see it. So what you do is you measure everything around it to understand where the black holes are. In a way, I think that's kind of the same thing with creativity. If you try to directly measure creativity the way you directly measure sales or you directly measure media efficiency, you're going to fail because it doesn't work that way. And so is there a different approach to measuring creativity that isn't the same paradigm that we've applied to measuring other Direct things. And so, this idea of in mathematics of an indirect proof is a way of measuring something, or maybe not even measuring something, proving the validity of something by without directly proving it. And so, that's something that I've only recently begun my investigation of just to try to understand how that works. But there needs to be a very concerted effort to understanding the impact and the ROI of creativity in organizations and in a way that is unique to creativity as opposed to taking the metrics of sales, which is transactional, and applying that to creativity, which is not transactional, and saying, did creativity have an ROI? Because it's not just about marketing. It's really about entrepreneurship. It's really about value creation. It's really about innovation. It's really about building entrepreneurial, resilient, creative cultures, which is what every CEO wants right now. So I think if you unlock that measurement or that way of validating creativity, it's not just about did the campaign work or not or is bringing in creative, smart, strategic, creative professionals, enhancing our bottom line. It's really about much, much more than that. And so I think that's an opportunity that I wish more people in the marketing industry would invest in.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Well, um, Leland, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been fascinating.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun.
2: Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing today was created and produced by me. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.